All right, Pete Giuliano. It is Tuesday, November 17th, 2021. That makes this solder smoke. What's the number, Pete? 234. Crank it in, Robert. Crank it in, Ralph. 234. Robert and Ralph, crank it in, fellas. Crank it in, man. 234. Hold on. I got to get you up on the screen here, Pete. I want to be able to, to see you because we're now... We're we're, we're 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 on video too. Hold on a second here. I got all kinds of weird things. There you go. I can see you now. I can see myself. We're recording. We're rocking and rolling here. Pete, many things to talk about. I know your time is limited, even though it's zero five thirty out there on the left coast. Yes. But thank you very much for getting up early in the morning for us. Hey, listen, we got some interesting messages. We got a nice one about the origins of solder smoke, the roots of solder smoke, the roots of the podcast. And it was from a fellow named Steve Smith out in California. And he, he said he liked the podcast a lot and said that you and I are the click and clack, the Tappet brothers Ooh. of ham radio. Ooh. And I took that as a real honor, but it also, it reminded me, yes, indeed, that was one of our early influences. And people from time to time asked about this. Um, I think I would have to say that in my case, one of the early influences was Gene Shepard. People have told me that uh, I, I'm trying to become sort of the reincarnation of Shep. I think that's going a little bit too far, but he was definitely an early influence. We also mentioned Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers, definitely. I really like their style. They're kind of back and forth. They're kind of having fun with car stuff, car talk. This is, I guess, shortwave or single sideband radio stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then I guess the other influence was shortwave stations, doing shortwave listening as a kid. We'll talk about that when we get down to the mailbag because we have some things to say about that. But just about this fellow, Steve Smith, when I saw Steve Smith, he didn't give his call sign. And I, for a moment, thought it was the famous Steve Snort Rosensmith. You know, this fellow who wrote was from California, too. I think yeah. Southern California. San Diego. So it, I, I, I all started thinking, man, maybe this is Steve Snort Rosen Smith just not giving his call sign. So I asked him, I said, are you the famous Snort Rosen Smith? And he replied, he said, no, I'm, I'm sorry to report that I'm only Steve, the aching sinus Smith, <laughs> WA6SOC, not WB6TNL. But we hope that Snort Rosen will chime in uh, eventually here. You, you know, he lives in Oxnard, Snort Rosen. And Ox yeah. Oxnard is just over the hill from where, I, where I'm at, maybe three miles. Oh, man, you guys, this, yeah, this, this yeah. be good, be good, be good, be good. He's, he, was, he was a real, a real influence. You know, he was, one of the, he was one of the first guys who pointed out that my thinking about um, an 80-20 or 75-20 with, with – I, I got – somebody sent me a 9 megahertz filter. And I was like, woohoo, I could make an SSB rig, LSB on 75, USB on 20. I won't even have to switch the carrier oscillator. Wrong. Steve Smith came back and said, wrong. One of the early guys, one of the first ones. Anyway, we would be glad to hear him. And thanks very much to the other, to Aching Sinus Smith, for his, his kind and very insightful remark about the origins of the podcast. Pete, you got many things on your bench. You go first, man. Tell us yeah, what's going yeah. on. Well, two two things first. First, I want to recognize your exalted status as uh -huh. a, in the member profile in QST, and so I have formalized my appearance today by wearing my black tie. Actually, this well, is called a Seattle tuxedo. It's a it's a Seattle a, tuxedo. Like it's dress, got the, dress blues and tennis shoes. Yes, just yes, like in the yeah, old days. yeah, yeah. Hey, um, you know, but Steve, uh, uh, Pete was the one who asked me about whether he would be required to wear 
uh, a bow tie uh, during future podcasts. And I just responded. I said, well, um, yes, since now I am one of the Illuminati, <laughs> there um, you go. F- formal attire will be required. Uh, I, I mentioned later on that uh, Chuck, WA7ZZE, he also saw the QST profile and asked me if I if he had to call me sir from now on. There you go. <laughs> I just said no. I think we should keep it informal. Yes, uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, anyway, hey, okay, but I, but I, I like the tie, Peter. Yeah, nice. I, w- I wanted to comment about Gene Shepard. Gene Shepard. Yes. When I did the GQRP second virtual convention on on valves and CW, I note in there special deference to Gene Shepard. His favorite transmitter was the Tritet. Did you know that? The Tritet. The Tritet. Is this like a sixty-nine? Big pardon? No, this is not a, not a sixty-nine tube. No, no. The Tritet oscillator is the combination triode tetrode, and that's right, the okay. James Lamb nineteen thirty-three W one C E. That was his favorite transmitter. So it's in the presentation. When that becomes public, you'll see that mentioned. I special deference to Gene Shepard. That's right. The Shep man, Excelsior. That's all yeah, I got to say. There you go. Hey, and his story about Heising modulation and his problems with Heising modulation. And the girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> girlfriend. He was so distracted because his he couldn't get his Heising modulator to work that, that he wasn't paying any attention to the girl on the date. And then finally she asked him what's wrong and he said, I can't get my Heising modulator to work properly. <laughs> and she looked at him and she said, there's something wrong with you. I think your mother should take you to a doctor. Yeah, there you go. There you go. There you go. Hey, We've I, all been there. That's it. I mean, listen, if you can't get your Heising modulator to operate, yeah, how can you think about anything yeah, else? Yeah. I mean, hey, I, I do want to make a plug for the Shameless Commerce Division early, Bill, because it's about a month is Christmas. Oh my God! Yes, but but the, but the, but the supply the supply supply train kids knock mixed everything up. So no no Santa this year, Pete. Well, I, uh, if you're going to get something, you better get it early. That's that was the that's point. right. That, that's it. There you go. We don't care here in the Shameless Commerce Division as long as we get the moolah. Yeah, yeah. There <laughs> so, you go. So there we'll go. order your stuff from Bezos early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. And you and use the link on the Solder Smoke blog. Yeah. There you go. It is unaffected. By supply chain problems. There you yes. go. Yeah. You know, he isn't an effect. I haven't found anything that I've looked at there that's not available, you know? Well, I know, but I, I found one yesterday. I was looking for a piece of pine board. Ooh. Because now all my rigs are built on pine board, uh, in, you know, in deference to, to Frank Jones uh, and, and others. But uh, I was looking for a piece of pine board, and they did not have the dimensions that I wanted. So that I had to turn to Home Depot. Home Depot had the dimensions I wanted, but then by the time I got through with that, I figured that I had probably had one out in the junk, junk bin of wood parts, and I went outside and I have it. So I have a, a pine board ready to go. But you're right. Most of the time, Bezos has whatever you're looking for. Yeah, yeah good stuff. Okay, what's on my bench? I think I'd first like to start with the P-S-S-S-T, the pst, 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 the newest. I love it. The newest transceiver from N6QW. And this is a seven transistor, seven transistor, solid state, single sideband transceiver for 20 meters. Seven transistors. And there was a design premise when I started this project. And the design premise was no bidic circuits, 
no TIA circuits, no EMFRD circuits, no Facebook groups. And the whole idea was, what can you do if you're not constrained by using elements of those prior rigs or prior approaches? And I came up with something. And it's got some steerable modules. And uh, using a bunch of relays, communications relays, that can be bought for 45 cents a piece, you can steer modules in there so that they have one path on receive, one path on transmit. This project is extensively documented on my website. And no one gives a crap. <laughs> oh, yes, we do. Yes, <laughs> no. we do. I, I have been following it. And, and when, when, the, when the world hears about it through the Solder Smoke podcast, they are going to care about this project. Well, the thing is, it's very simple to build. It's minimalist. I mean, there's very few components in there. Uh, and it uses uh, five 2N2222A 22, 22 transistors, one 2N2219, and one IRF510. Stuff that you can buy for less than five bucks. Matter of fact, the heat sinks <laughs> for, for, for the 2N2222As cost more than the transistors. <laughs> But we have a process. You know, that's that's the price point that we're aiming at because you know when you, when you talk about you know radios and stuff, it's better to say price point than yes. price. Yes, the price price point, point sounds more impressive. Yes, yes, yes. yes that five dollar price point is yeah. about about where we aim most of our radio projects. And I have been having a blast with this rig. Worked have been working a lot of DX with it. Now I do have a little afterburner on it, about seventy five watts. And just the, the Delta Loop, I've uh, been working a lot of DX with it, a lot of stateside stations have been working some QRP. And I paid a lot of attention to the microphone amplifier. And the microphone amplifier, there are curves in there from LT Spice. I really paid attention to the low frequencies so the signal has presence. And one of the most frequent comments I get is, God, it really sounds great. So it pays to do the simulations and to address the low frequency. This, this amplifier is good from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. And the audio reports are all excellent. No, you know, it sounds tinny, pinched. You don't hear that. And you don't hear, hey, it sounds good for a homebrew rig. It says, oh, the, man, statement that, is, that, yeah. the statement is, it really sounds good. Because if they say it sounds good for a homebrew <clears throat> rig, Pete, I think you've got to send somebody out to see them. Yeah, right. <laughs> Going to make a visit. Going to make a visit. So, so anyway, the PSSST, and you can find that by going to the n6qw.com, and then you do the uh, the backslash or the forward slash the uh, PSSST in caps underscore twenty dot html. That's that's the URL address for that. Def definitely check it out because this is, I think, really, really interesting. I like the way you do the steering of the IF module. I've looked at it. It's really, really nice. The pictures are great. I like the two ADE ones at either end. Uh, really nice. So, I mean, definitely, definitely do There's even board look. layouts if you want to make PC boards. I mean. That's it. <laughs> you could build these things. Yeah, you could you, build one. Yeah, build one do in it. the garage. But uh, I am somewhat disappointed. I posted it on the GQRP group IO. I, I got one email. How come there's no CW? Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, well. <laughs> you know, so that, that's a level. <laughs> but I'm sure I, those, you know, sometimes, sometimes that mailing list they, they take a little while to respond. I'm sure people are, are thinking about it. You know, looking at it. And uh, yeah, well, I not, mean, not not that I'm 
so much interested. I'm having fun with the project. That's the important thing. And I'm getting yeah. use out of it. And people are, I mean, I even talked to a guy yesterday, big time ham in Virginia. And this guy is pretty discerning. And he even said, man, that really sounds good. So I, when, when you get these guys that are really picky and are well-known and they say it sounds good, that that's that that's an important piece of information. Okay, that is no, that is really good, and I mean it's great that you documented it. I mean because like we always say, you know, with with the podcast and with the blogs and everything else, you might not get somebody who who grasps onto it now, but somebody two, three, four years from now might you know suddenly start looking around for a project and come across yours. I mean, I'm going to talk in a little while about my first SSB transmitter. And I got that from a Sprat article by G3YCC, Frank. And I, I got it, and it was years after he wrote it. And then I, I got it, and I built it. And that, that machine is sitting behind me there on the, on the workbench. We'll talk about that in yeah. a minute. The, the other project I was working on is I got the KWM1 working. You took it off the shame shelf. Off the shame shelf, yeah. You like that. Man, I, I, I really like that <laughs> phrase, and I sent it to Steve Silverman, our official lexicographer. Yes. And uh, I think it definitely should be included in the Solder Smoke lexicon, the yeah. shame shelf. Yeah. Well, that has several meanings. The shame shelf, it's a shame it doesn't work. <laughs> and I'm ashamed that I had to put it up there. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, even, even Doug DeMoore... I think I remember Doug Moore writing that he admitted. I don't know whether he admitted that there were projects that he couldn't get to work, but he definitely admitted that he built some stuff that he didn't understand. He didn't understand how it worked. Mm -hmm. I guess that's a, a variation of the shame shelf. But go ahead. Well, the the thing was uh, when I bought it, um, the adver the advertising for it says it doesn't work on receive. You can't hear the crystal calibrator, and I said I can fix that, and uh, so. I did get it working, and then it stopped working. And then I found out why. There was a broken wire on the relay. You know, that, that broken wire must have been broken before. And somehow, when I was jiggling around, it, it t touched the contact. And then I moved it again. But, I mean, I, it was like finding a needle in the haystack, the broken wire. Because they were in a wire bundle that went to these multi-contacts. So when you just look at it, it looks like it's connected. But it wasn't. It's just, these are the kind of things that'll just drive you nuts. Yeah. I mean, I, I had this one time on the, uh, a, a variation of this on my 0.1 kW linear amplifier. In the, um, the low-pass filter that I built for, I used these big old toroids because it was up to 100 watts, don't you oh, know? Oh, yeah. And, you know, and it was, it was kind of going in and out, in and out. When I, I'd, be, I'd be working a sideband contact, and all of a sudden, boom, power out would go to zero. I thought the problem was a connection in the D104 microphone. I tore the D104 apart. All the connectors, I soldered them where there was a, just a connector. And then I, it, only later did I realize that one of the copper wires that I had on the coil had stressed and de-stressed, I guess, to the point where the wire broke inside the insulation. Inside the insulation. Oh, yeah. So if you looked at it, Good. it looked perfectly normal. <laughs> yeah. But only when you took the, the multimeter and checked, wow. Open. Open. It's yeah. supposed to be closed. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I want to introduce a concept here. Okay? Concept. Tribal, oh, listen, tribal wisdom. Tribal I mean, wisdom. Tribal well, wisdom. actually, it's, it's more. I, I've been noodling the idea of a, an equipment exchange website or an ex, parts exchange. You know, like I'm looking for something. 
Do you know if anybody has done that where they, they post a list of, I am looking for this? Or- well, you know what? You know what? This you, It's interesting you raise this because for a while, guys were passing around by mail a box with like discarded electronic parts. And the deal was, I guess it's like these little libraries that you see all yeah. through suburban neighborhoods. The idea is that when you get the box, you look through it. If you see stuff that you like or need, you take it out. Then you replace it with stuff that you, from your own collection, have yeah. that you don't really like or need, but somebody else might have. And then you send it to another random person, yeah. right? Or maybe people on a list or whatever. But the thing keeps circulating, and people are constantly getting kind of a chance to look through yeah. parts. But I like your idea. Your, your idea is a variation of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you know if there is such a thing? I, I don't know. I haven't heard of one. I mean, it would be nice if you went to a website and say, I'm looking for this. Uh, and or I have this available, some you know parts exchange. Well, you know one one venue that I'll mention, and I'm not going to mention the one that begins with F. Okay, that you don't like. Yeah, yeah. We're not going. No, yeah, I'm yeah, not, yeah. I know that would just blow yeah. some fuses. No, but I discovered something this week on the QRZ.com page. You know where we always check some guy's call sign. Yeah, that that thing has grown quite a bit, and there's a section in there called forums or mm-hmm. fora. And if you click on it, there's like dozens of different forums on there, all kinds of different topics. And maybe the kind of parts exchange idea would fit in with one of them. I don't know. Or maybe you could create a new forum or have QRZ.com create another one. A lot of people look at those things. So it's, it's, it's pretty wide visibility. And you might want to take a look, think about doing it there. That'd be interesting. Yeah. So if anybody else, any any of you e-gurus out there, send us ideas how best to do what Pete's talking about, because I do think it would be a really interesting project. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I'm looking for a knob for a radio, you know, because I'd like to restore it so that it's got the knob. So the knob may cost a couple of bucks. Where do you find one? I mean, you, you look on eBay, but someone's got a drawer full of knobs. Yeah, yeah, I got one of those, you know, send me two bucks and to cover the postage and it's yours. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, there's so many parts that I do that, that yet I know that if, even if I went out onto eBay, that nobody would have the... I was looking L8 on the double crystal lattice filter in a Swan 240. There you go. <laughs> and now, Pete, I know you may have three of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you got three of everything. <laughs> but And there are other guys out there who have similar collections. Yeah. So that'd be, that'd be an interesting thing. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Especially in the boat anchor world, the old the world of old gear, the world of KWM1s. Yeah, yeah. 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 Someone's got a Anyway, you, you, what's going on? You, a lot of people are still building the, the your DCRX, your DC yeah. receiver. Well, I was just going to cover that. We're now up to 90. Yeah, you see, so when you say people don't pay any attention, if you've got 90 people out in the world building your receiver, this is phenomenal. Well, I'm not sure 90 people are building it. 90 requests well, for the code. I mean, when you look at some of those some of those projects that were in QSD back when hams were hams and knew which end of the soldering iron to grab and all that, I don't think any of them had 90 people building them. So Well, maybe, because at a time that the stuff was being built, you didn't you couldn't buy it. If yeah. you wanted it, you had yeah, to build right. it, you know. So I think ninety is still pretty but, impressive. But some of the requests are are a little they're bothersome, and you don't want to throw a, a wet blanket on it. But a guy says, "I'm new to home brewing. I've never built it. Where's the circuit board for this project?" 
Yeah. <laughs> that was no, a request no. today. I, I, you get, that was a request You get that today. a lot, you know. No, it's not a kit. No, it's yeah. different. And yeah, yeah. So, also sometimes, I mean, I I get the same kind of inquiries sometimes, and I I just kind of try to gently say, hey, look, you know, building a kit is different, and this is not building a kit. So, you'll actually find this more rewarding. It's more difficult, but it's not just stuffing a PC board. You know, yeah. you can stuff a PC board and not know anything about electronics. Just stuff the parts in. Yeah. You know, put yeah. R one in R one slot. You know, yeah. just just look at the color pictures and match the colors. <laughs> No, and this and a lot of guys have written and said, "Yeah, you know, I built three, four kits and didn't learn a darn thing." Yeah, and now I want to move into to home brewing, and so yeah, I mean, it, I think it's worth it to take to make the switch. Yeah, cool. So anyway, that there's there's still some interest in that project, but uh, I, I think that's kind of cool. And there's uh, some interest too in CNC milling, and. Um, Keep an eye on the on the CNC milling machine prices. I mean, they're down around three hundred bucks. I mean, a year ago these things were like six, seven hundred dollars. I mean, in, around Christmas time, and there's nothing nicer than the you want a second one, punch the start button, you're there. There you go, Bill. I'm oh, mad. <laughs> you, 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 you gotta okay. join the club Listen. here. Contact Jeff Bezos. He could get you. He could set you up. I'm sure he's got you know <laughs> he does, many many so, CNC same mills. smart. Yeah. 350 there bucks there you go hey p you put up an article on your blog that i really liked how to make things work yeah that was that was really good i mean that was there was a lot of good tribal knowledge and insight in there on i'm, I'm facing a problem that a lot of new home brewers build get and that is they build something then they say it doesn't work and they just look at it and then they get mad at it then they get mad at the guy who published the schematic like you yeah <laughs> and say it didn't it work sucked. no it sucks <laughs> <laughs> but anyway i i i and I, I think i put a picture up when i when i when i when i when i forwarded on my blog the the article that you wrote i found this picture of some guy who had tried to build an 80 meter double oh, side yeah, band yeah. <laughs> just i mean it was like i don't want to make fun of anybody but it was like the the epitome of doing what i did when I was 14 years old, that is, you see the schematic, all you see is a bunch of parts and wires in the schematic. You can't even really see the distinct stages. So what you do is you, you just start slapping parts almost willy-nilly onto a board, trying your best to connect the one to the other where it's supposed to connect. And of course, when you're finished with the whole thing, it doesn't work. Yeah. Because the way you should have done it is the way you talk about in your article, and that is stage by stage. Build the, the the AF amplifier first. Does the AF amplifier work? Okay, great. Yeah. Move back. Back to the mixer. Does the mixer mix? Does the VFO oscillate? Boom, boom. And when you do that in that way, in a methodical way, at the end, it should work or be real close. Yes. Or if it doesn't work, you know yes. which stage is likely to be causing the problem. Well, you know, the, I wanted to go over that point just a little bit. In the PSSST write-up, I talk about the sequencing of the build. Mm-hmm. And I said, if you build the uh, the digital VFO VFO first, it then becomes a piece of test equipment because you can move that signal ar- around. If you instead of having the dial read fourteen megahertz, read five megahertz, the output is at fourteen megahertz instead of twenty three. And I said, if you built the low pass filter and connected the ADE one. And crank the the display so it reads five megahertz. 
you now have a 20 meter direct conversion receiver so mm -hmm. you can check the you can peak the bandpass filter you can make sure the ADE1 works and the digital VFO now gives you a 20 meter direct conversion receiver and if you have the audio amplifier you're all set to go and then if you build the microphone amplifier next and you run that through the ADE1 with and using the 9 megahertz uh, BFO you now have a double sideband signal so so there you are building only two of the circuits the bandpass filter and the microphone amplifier you can test about 50% of the transceiver and know that you got a double sideband signal and a direct conversion receiver and you're learning so much along the way. You, yeah. You've just learned how to, to build a direct conversion yeah. Yeah. receiver and a DSP yeah. transmitter. Yeah. yeah. And then, then you then you carry on from there yeah, and, and then you, you, had the you IF end up module. with the SSB transceiver. Yeah, those parts all work. And then you had the IF module and you got a working receiver. So the sequence. You know, this is reminiscent of, of some of the <clears throat> great stuff that Hans did in a different way with his uh, QCX transceiver yeah. where... The transceiver contained the test gear that you needed. Tune the bandpass I mean, filter, yeah. Oh man, I mean, you know, he was doing it at much at at, at so, sort of more much more complex levels. You're you're at the simple end of the spectrum there, but the same idea. And I really like that idea. That's a brilliant idea about starting out with a DC receiver, using it to tweak the, the bandpass band filter. filter. Yeah, they, which is which is one of the hardest things for people to I, do. I mean, I, I looked at that and I said. Hey, this will work if you build it in the right sequence. And I mean, normally you'd say, why would you build the microphone amplifier? Because you're using the packaged ADE ones. Now one is direct conversion receiver, the other is the balance modulator. And and you have the digital VFO has built in what you need to test those circuits. Man, beautiful stuff. Yeah. Hey, hey, more recently, and I'm I'm a close watcher of your blog, Pete. So don't think nobody out there is is looking. I, at least I'm looking, and others are looking too. I know, but you had an interesting piece about diode switching or or relays. Yes, and I know this is another kind of a sore point because I I get it sometimes. I'm a big fan of the relays too because they're they're so simple, and they they're they're easy to put there. They're cheap. I use them a lot, and then you'll get guys say, "Hey, listen, why don't you use diode switching?" Dean Dean hit me with that question at one point because I think they were using diode switching in one of one of the rigs that his group was working on. And I came back and I just said, I don't know, I just sort of prefer relays. And you, you said, yeah, relays too. I know this has come up again. And, you know, people have asked you about why not using diodes for diode switching. Okay, there's a couple of problems with that. Signal isolation and signal levels. If you run a couple of watts through a diode, <laughs> probably not a good idea. You know, say, oh yeah, I'll diode switch the low-pass filter. Well, some of those uh, 1N914 probably can't take that. So, I mean, a, re a relay, the right kind of contacts. So, I mean, it all depends. Certain low-level signals uh, using the diode steering works pretty well. And I only included that to show you how you could do it. So, I, I think you're going to have to try it for a particular circuit element. And if it works, uh, some diodes are pretty lossy, especially if you buy... 1,000 diodes for five bucks. <laughs> they're, they're, <Yeah. laughs> they're, they're probably rejects. But I specify a specific diode, a 1N3070, 3070. And I didn't think that up. I had been in contact with Watkins Johnson, 
when I built the Mimic transceiver, the transceiver that uses the three pairs of Mimics. And they told me this 1N3070 has good RF prop properties up through the gigahertz range. So they're switching signals at gigahertz range. That's why. So it's, don't put a 1N914 in there. Get some 1N3070s. That's why it has those diodes in there. Hey, speaking of diodes, I was going to have, I had this in the mailbag section, but let me bring it up now because um, we got an interesting question from uh, Walter, a guy, a guy that we've talked to for, for a long time, KA4KXX down there in the Orlando. The Sunrise Group. The Sunrise Group. Walter's a, a long time home brewer, uh, QRPer, it really knows, he's one of these people who knows which end of the soldering iron to grab. And he asked an interesting question. The question is still out there. It's about diodes. It's about the diodes that are in the amplifiers in the BIDX20. All right? So the BIDX20 has these amplifiers. They're bi-directional amplifiers. They're not TIAs yet. But Farhan had diodes going from the supply up through the diode, I think through a resistor to the collector of the transistor so that when you flew th through the TR switch from T to R, you key to relay that, you know, in T sequence powered up some of the transistors and R in R powered up the others. Walter's question is really, what does the diode do? And I think it's a good question because later in later versions of the bi-directional amplifier, specifically the TIA amps, there are no diodes. You don't see those diodes there. So Walter asked about the diodes. I passed the question on to Farhan, but then Farhan went on the road. So we're waiting for the response and where Farhan's going to explain the, the purpose of the diodes. But it's got me scratching my head because I think, and I think Walter's right, that you could just dispense with the diode and those amplifiers would work just fine. As a matter of fact, I think he said that VK3YE, Peter Parker, down there in Melbourne has been doing that just sort of dispensing with the diodes so let's think about that anyway that's a, it's a kind of an interesting question and since we were talking diodes i figured i'd mention it here yeah i i i don't have a good answer for you uh, unless I know, it was you know, diode I, steering uh, that's one thing but it wasn't even really steering i mean i'm not quite sure but i remember when i was building my first bidex i got the idea of using leds instead of regular old diodes Ooh. You know, use, you know, red ones for the transmit side, green ones for the receive side. And I remember writing to Farhan, this is way back 2014 or so, writing to Farhan about it. And he said, nah, <laughs> don't do it. You might mess something up. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I still think it would be kind of cool. Hey, anything happening with your national receiver, the national receiver that you were encouraging me to get one of because of the nifty uh, electromechanical display? No, it's it's just here. I, I had to move it off the bench because I was working on the PSSST. Hey, hey, but I wanted to share a piece of information with you because um, I copied you on an email that I sent to Jameco. I saw about, that, yeah. About, about soldering irons. Okay. So I noticed with the uh, new transceiver, I, I was hearing some, some noise. I was hearing some noise in it and I... I I'd pull the antenna and the noise would disappear. Plug in the antenna and the noise was there. So I said, God, what the heck's that? So I'm I'm working on it. So then I said, well, geez, I almost burnt myself on the soldering iron. I unplugged the soldering iron and the noise went away. Mm. <laughs> I, I, this, is, this is what happened with me with the treadmill. I had the treadmill, you know. Yeah. And, uh, I said, 
Way into the soldering iron. So this is a cheapo soldering iron. It must have a switcher. <laughs> and so they got switchers in everything. Every all these little supplies. The the Walworts have switchers so, I mean, in them. The, the 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 soldering iron was plugged into the same uh, power bar as the power supply for the for the rig. So I mean it was, and I, and, I, and I wouldn't I wouldn't have noticed it if I hadn't unplugged it because I said, well I'm done with that. And all of a sudden the noise. I said, wait, let's do that again. So I plugged it in. You get the noise. <laughs> you yep. plug it. Yeah, but at least you know that's what the problem is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But you you also talked about a bigger problem with with these uh, the temperature sta temperature stabilized power uh, soldering irons. Yeah. And they and die. I, I had one. I picked one of these up. I'm pointing to it now. The Xtronic 4000 series. This was um, recommended by the the really great uh, podcast chat with the designers from the, the New Jersey American yeah. QRP Club. <clears throat> And I got it. I used it for a long time. I really liked it because it has the, uh, the the hot air blower that you could use for the occasional removal of surface mount parts. I would sometimes use it just to shrink the heat shrinking that I'd put around around wires. But it just recently gave up the ghost on me. Oh. Another one. I know. You got them. Yeah. <laughs> now, I also have one of these uh, Heiko, uh, Heiko soldering irons. Uh, this one's kind of different because when you put it in the stand... It reduces the temperature of the iron to about 400 degrees Fahrenheit. When you take the iron out of the stand, you have to pause for a few seconds until you hear a beep. When the beep comes, the tip has gone up to 700 degrees Fahrenheit. And this, I think, actually is pretty good. It prevents you from sitting there cooking the iron all the time because one of the things without temperature stabilization is those, those tips burned up really fast because they were sitting there for hours and hours at 700 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. So this thing actually is working working pretty good, and I I, I like it. So um, I'm sticking with that one. I don't know how long it's going to last, but you were complaining <laughs> to Jameco about their well, lack said, of longevity. Well, I said you're pushing this thing, and they're pushing the Zytronic just like you got. And I said, have you guys used one? <laughs> Use it for a while and see, see what if you if it doesn't die after six months. And I said, if you find <laughs> one that lasts more than six months, you're going to sell a ton of them. Well, Pete, you know. <laughs> But most, most most people don't use soldering irons as intensely as we do. <laughs> we, we should be like we should be like the test the test the testing ground for soldering irons. Yeah. If they could make it through Giuliano's workshop, that's a good soldering iron. <laughs> they could, they'll run ads like on car TV. Even in Pete Giuliano's workshop, this soldering iron lasted more than twelve months. Yeah, Holy yeah, cow! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's an opportunity here, Pete. Opportunities. Oh, okay, I'm done. All right. All right. Let me talk about my bench. First, I want to I want to say something else about Farhan. Farhan did a talk to the Radio Society of Great Britain. He had to stay up till three o'clock in the morning to be on the same time time zone as the Brits at the convention. And man, I really loved his presentation. I I, I was so enthusiastic about it. I said if there was if I was limited to one YouTube video. This year, this would be the one that I would pick. And even, even though Farhan, it was all about VHF. It's about Farhan building a two-meter sideband version of the Bidex transceiver. Now, I am not a VHF guy. You are not a VHF guy. But it was just fascinating to me to see Farhan kind of tackle the problems and the questions that arise with VHF construction. Things like, would, would a, an FT... Uh, 43 uh, toroid work at two meters? The answer is yes. 
Would various transistors that he was working at, working with, operate at those frequencies? Yes. We all know you have to keep the leads shorter. The parts have to be closer together. You have to pay more attention to stray inductance and capacitance. But, but he was able to, to do that. And in the course of doing that, he explained a lot about construction process applicable in the HF range too. But of course, as I watched him talk about two meters, I sat here and thought, hey, two meters. Yeah, I want to do that. You know, it's like, you know, you're being lured in. And so I started looking around thinking, what kind of two meter gear do I have here? And around the same time I was reading Chuck WA7ZZE's book about Heath kits. Beautiful book, by the way. Uh, get this book if you can. And so that and Farhan caused me to go into the junk box and pull out, and I have it sitting over there on the bench. Look at, look at, look at, look at a, a right tour, mocking me. It's 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 scorning me. It's, it's a mocking tour. Me. It's a tour. It's a Benton Harbor lunchbox for two meters. All right. So I started thinking, all right, I'm going to start out seeing if I could get something to produce a modulated or even unmodulated signal on two meters. Now. The Benton Harbor lunchbox has, it's not really a transceiver, it's more a transmitter receiver. There are actually no common stages other than the power supply. The, the receiver is a super regenerative receiver. What horrible beasts these things are. <laughs> Peter's making a, a hand sign indicating broad as a barn door. Yeah, well, it tunes from 136 to 174 in a little space like that. Not only that. Nobody really knows how the thing works. If you look at all these handbooks, your, your, your picture just disappeared. You there? There you are. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, the, um, the, all these kind of explanations, and you could tell they're hand-waving explanations. When you read the explanation and you really get the sense that the guy who's writing doesn't really understand it, you could almost see his hands waving. He's Italian. <laughs> <laughs> now, there, I did manage to find a couple... That where the guy really seemed like he knew what he was talking about. But God, it's complicated. It's not, it's not even really like a regular old regenerative receiver. It's more like pulse width modulation. And it has, oh God. And, it, and then you, you read this whole thing, you finally understand it. And what you understand is it really doesn't work that well. All right. So I said, okay, I'm not going to mess with the super regenerative receiver because it's super strange. On the transmit side, they got three little tubes in there that, you know, goes from like an 8 megahertz crystal and multiplies and multiplies and multiplies and in the end you're up at 144 megahertz. So I figured how hard could this be? I got 8 megahertz crystal, I plugged it in there, tweaked the first coil, tweaked the second coil. Man, I could not get this thing to transmit on 2 meters. Couldn't do it. And then in the process of messing with this stuff, first of all now I'm having, I'm going against all my principles because I'm messing with stuff at 200 volts, which is not a good idea for a transistor guy. So, almost like in a warning to me, I dragged across, I, I don't get my hands in there, but when I was, when I was removing um, the leads from an audio oscillator from my beloved Maplin audio waveform generator that I have right here, I dragged the input terminal right across the tube, the energized tube, putting about 200 volts across the input terminal of the Maplin audio waveform generator. Pete, it doesn't like it. it. It's not good for it. It released all of the magic smoke. Now, so 
Okay, so now this is like adding insult to injury. Not only can I not get the, the tour to operate on two meters even in transmit, I've destroyed my beloved Maplin AF signal waveform generator in the process. Now, I managed to fix the, the Maplin, or Maplin, however, however you say it. Maplin. Yeah, that's right, Maplin. Anyway, um, I fixed it by, <laughs> by ordering through eBay and Amazon all of the chips. This is sort of like the shotgun approach. I knew I blew up one of these chips, but I wasn't sure which one. So I just ordered replacements for all of them, replaced all the chips, and sure enough, now the thing works. It's kind of a crude troubleshooting way, but I did it. Um, but anyway, I have now... And then here's, here's the other thing. As I'm doing this, I'm thinking to myself, I might be missing out on all this great you know, QSO stuff going on up there in two meters. There is none. There's nothing up there. I mean, it's like, you, especially, so I'm building for AM. There's barely FM activity up there. Even, even in Northern Virginia, one of the most intense technological regions of the country. If you go and listen to the two-meter repeaters, it's mostly just dead air. There's nobody up there. So if I went up, even if I succeeded and got a two-meter AM station going, there'd be like nobody to, to talk to. So after a while, I came back to my senses. <laughs> I stopped I stopped working on 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 two meters, but I I know that 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 Farhan will do something else that will cause me to get back into this kind of VHF madness. Then there's the Frank Jones, Frank Jones, Frank Jones, VHF guy. Well, know, you, you, you know, part of that bill might be uh, localized in in India, where there's a lot of high density population. Not, not a lot of room to put up antennas, whereas two meters and six meter antennas are something you can stuff in your yard, not not a yeah. 40 meter dipole. So I, I could see the interest in doing it in his country oh, oh. because of the density. Yeah, and Farhan was also doing it because he uses it a lot for satellite work. So he's, he's deeply involved in the satellites. We'll talk about that again in a minute. But um, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I am putting the, um, the tour on the on the shelf, on the shame shelf. I'm putting it on the shame shelf. <laughs> well, well, you know, if you have a real interest in doing that, um, another option, because I was talking to Steve Hartley about this. Um, Steve has got a, a group of people building a sideband transceiver there in the uh -huh. UK. Yeah. And uh, so he's taken some elements of some of the stuff I built. And it's a new design, but he's using some bits and pieces. And he was talking a little bit about, you know, VHF. And I said, think transverter. Take, take well, one. Yeah. Of, take one. Of, you can, you can, eBay's got tons of transverters for 20, 30 bucks. You can take a, you know, 17 meter BIDX or a 15 meter BIDX or a 20 meter BIDX and put a transverter on it and you're, you're in business. Yeah. I was looking at one of Farhan's designs. I'm not sure which one it was, but one of his more recent designs. And this may be this may be coming out of his um, um, GQRP presentation, I think, which has not yet been released to the public. No. But those of us in the Illuminati, you know, we've yeah, been able to, yeah, you know, yeah. got connections. Wolfshine, Wolfshine, got connections. 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 Anyway, I think in that he points to a design where he deliberately leaves two terminals coming out of the rig. For connection to a transverter so yeah i mean i that, that thought has crossed my mind too so anyway we'll stay tuned we might we might find some activity on two meters hey but that's 
looking forward, looking back, I've been playing with my mate for the Mighty Midget receiver Ooh. again. I have it sitting here right next to me. You can see I'm, I'm pointing here. But there it is. It is also in the box from a tour. This is a tour that I destroyed. But I did it back in 1998. I built this thing in 1998. Oh, stat statute of limitations is expired. <laughs> it's expired, thank God, yeah. Three 6U8 tubes using the power supply from the tour. And uh, it, it's a, it's a single sideband uh, CW receiver for uh, 75 and 40 meters using a 455 KC IF, all right? And, I mean, I've been fidgeting with this thing. And, and the, the thing that really required the most fidgeting is the, the filter, all right? Because when Lou McCoy designed this thing back in 1966, his idea was to use surplus crystal filters, FT241s at 455 KC. This, this was an iffy proposition even in the days following World War II because a lot of these 455 KC filters were bad. They were bad from the get-go. They were bad during the war. But if you got two good ones that were properly spaced, you could put it in there, and they kind of, sort of, if you looked at them right, served as a decent SSB filter. If you got them too close in frequency, you got kind of a sort of decent CW filter. But it was all kind of hit and miss. I never could get the thing to work. I used a 455KC IF can in place of them, which left the receiver broad as a barn door, but I could listen to it. Then I went through all different versions over the years. I put a CM5 uh, Toyo 455 kind of hybrid uh, crystal filter, mechanical filter in there. Too high insertion loss. I found a B&W 455KC filter that promised to be really narrow. Put that in there. Didn't really work right. I recently started talking to, um, to somebody else who's, who's working on one of these, Scott, WA9WFA. And it occurred to me to try a, a ceramic resonator in there. And you can get ceramic resonators of all different bandwidths. I happen to have one in the junk box that was at 455KCs with a bandwidth of about 6KCs which is too wide for SSB, eh, but just about right for AM. And I like to listen to SSB and AM, so I put it in there. I figured out how to put it in there, put it in there. Man, it is working better than any of the other versions. It is so nice. I run it with a little uh, computerized, computer kind of powered speaker that I have here. And I, I just use it sort of for easy listening. When I'm working on something else in the shack, I turn the thing on. I tune to 75 or 40, depending on the time of day, and I listen to the to the chatter. I listen to guys talking. It's AM sounds great on it. Sideband sounds great on it because it's broad. It, I, I've got the, the BFO placed at the very low end of the passband. I measured the passband with the nano, nano, via, via, the nano VNA, so I know what the passband looks like, and I know that allowed me to figure out where to put the BFO. So I put the BFO way down at 451, which means that the opposite sideband rejection is great. And then everything above 451 is, is coming in. And so that's where the broadness comes in. But it really doesn't matter. It sounds, it sounds great. And I, I, I've really enjoyed working on this thing. It's, it's a fun tinkering project. And I've had a lot of, a lot of fun with it. Hey, hey, hey um, I, I, go ahead. I just want to interject. I, when we talked about this in the last podcast, I said find the J version, the, four, the yeah. new J by the way, you, I, I've got to find them, you know, and well, I, 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 I've looked for them. I, I know that they're available from a couple different places and there are kind of narrower versions. You could get it. I've seen them advertised down at, 
like a 4KC bandwidth, which would be better for SSB. But, you know, I'm tempted just to leave well enough alone because this, with the filter in there that I have now, it works really well on SSB and it works great on AM. Well, well what I was going to share is that they use the J version <clears throat> in the high-end ICOM rigs. Yeah. And and they want like 95 bucks for one of those. But what I was going to suggest, contact Murata. Say you'd like to evaluate do they have a oh, yeah, do they have go. a sample? I mean, <laughs> I, I did that with many circuits, and they sent me four. <laughs> so what's an email? You know, send them an email. <laughs> hey, hey, by the way, on those FT two forty ones, you have the sideband handbook with the picture of Rudolph Fisher's HRO homebrew receiver. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look in there. There's a 75-meter single sideband transceiver that uses three of those FT241s for a crystal filter. When I looked at that, I said, who are you kidding? <laughs> but there's a yeah. pro- there's a project in there with three. They well, use three FT241s. Yeah, you know, you, uh, and he, he, I, I went back and I was I was doing some reading on the history of early sideband. And some, some people have pointed out, I think in Stoner's, Stoner's SSB handbook from like around 1954, 55, he points out that even then, about a quarter of the FT241 crystals that they found at 455 KCs were already bad. I mean, and that was, and this is before, you know, four or five decades of sitting in a musty basement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which couldn't have improved things. Hey, uh, just one other thing, since we're on this subject, you know, I've been, I, I spent an inordinate amount of time uh, trying to discover the, the, the myth behind, discover the true origins of the, uh, SSB convention that has us running LSB below 10 megahertz and USB above. And I came across something the other day. I was looking at um, the QRP book, QRP Classics from the ARRL. And there's an article in there about band imaging receivers. And this guy was building one for um, 17 megacycles and 10 megacycles. So the, the, um, no, the 17 meter, 18 megacycles and 10 megacycles. And so, 30. in other words, the, the, uh, the, the 17 meter band and the 30 meter band. Yeah. And he's building a band imaging receiver. And in the article, he starts talking about how, in the early days of, well, back in the post war period, it was popular to build a, um, receivers for, uh, for 75 and or transceivers for 75 and 40 using the band imaging technique. But the IF was not at nine megacycles, it was at 1.7. Right, and with the with with the with the um, with the filter with with the IF at one point seven, you did get the effect of seventy five is on uh, LSB and the other one is on USB. All right, so that was kind of interesting, and I, I I saw that and I said, wow, that that be that would be that that's something right there. So maybe maybe I'm just thinking about it here. Three point five maybe. 3.5. Yeah, yeah. Then you'd have to run the VFO higher to get it down to 1.7. Yeah, so it would work there, but it definitely did not work with the 9 megahertz filter and the 5 megahertz VFO <coughs> of the um, uh, um, of the command set. So anyway, more, more to follow on that. I'll put something up on the blog about it. Hey, listen, a couple other things. Um, I'll go through this kind of quickly. A few other things on the bench. Sweeping an IF, sweeping a crystal filter with noise. This is something that Tony Fishpool recommended a long time ago, and I was wanting to do it. Now I have the tiny SA, the little tiny SA here, in the exact same box as the Nano VNA, the tiny SA, 
And you, basically the idea is you take a noise generator, a broadband noise generator, put it at the input of a filter, put the tiny SA on the other end, and see what frequencies make it through the filter. This gives you an idea of the passband. And I did it, and it worked. But I used, I used the filter that Dean and his crew used with, the, uh, with their uh, simple SSB transceiver that you designed. And the thing is, the, the filter, I know it has, has a nice-looking passband, but it didn't look nice when I did it. It worked, but there was like a kind of a bumpy passband in there. So I started thinking about that, and I, I realized that my noise generator was not producing kind of noise at the same level across the band of frequencies that we were interested in. I was using my little FieldTech SIG generator, and it, the noise that it was producing was bumpy. So bumpy noise in, <laughs> bumpy passband out. So I need a better noise generator. But the concept works, and it was a lot of fun. One other thing about the Tiny SA, ooh, this is fun. There's a mod to the Tiny SA Spectrum Analyzer that allows you to use it as a receiver. All right? So you go in there, and you solder in a couple connections, and you put like a little uh, speaker or earphone jack on it, right? And then when you're tuning across, for example, the FM broadcast band, and you put the, the, uh, the cursor on 100.3 classic rock in northern virginia you stick the headphone in and you're you can listen to it now this is a really cool mod of the tiny sa you don't get to do too many hardware mods of the tiny sa here's one i have it up on the blog check it out it's really pretty cool i didn't invent it i'm just putting the link up there it's really kind of cool hey one final question i have here pete and I, I i i've already posed this question to you i'm going to throw it out to the group i had such fun building the um, the 7520 Mythbuster transceiver. It's a it's essentially a band imaging transceiver, all right? That allows one VFO to be used, you know, add one and then subtract on the other side, add one side, subtract on the other side, and you get 75 and 20 meters. Um, in this case, because you're doing it that way. You get USB on 75, LSB, uh, LSB on 75, USB on 20. Now, um, I would like to do the same thing. Sunspots are coming back. They are. 25 is, cycle 25 is doing good, and I want to move higher in frequency. So my idea, and this is why I needed the new pine board, is to build a similar transceiver for two bands, but higher in frequency. Not VHF higher, HF higher. And the two bands that I would like to get are 17 meters, because I, I love that band, and 12 meters, because I've never really operated there. So I've been noodling. I've been doing what you recommend, I noodling. Noodling and trying to figure out, is there a way to do this that would work? Now, I know selection of intermediate frequencies is a hazardous business, because if you get it wrong, ooh, trouble. Now, my idea was, wouldn't it be great if I just were able to do the band imaging technique, you know, between 18 megahertz and, um, and 29 or, or, or it was 24. 25 megahertz, 24. 20, yeah, 24.9 yeah. megahertz. And so if you, if you split it, the difference, if you had an IF at 21.4 megahertz, all right, now... You can get crystals at that frequency Did, pretty didn't close. Didn't Steve build a filter at 21.4? Steve. Steve who? N8MN. N8, did he? I got to yes. check with him. Yes, he, he did. He might have the answer. Yes, he did. He, All right. That was his latest build, 21.4. For what bands was he building? 17 for? meters. 
oh man, I got to talk to Steve. All yeah. right. And then, because this would be really cool, because then I could run one of my beloved analog VFOs. <laughs> he made a noise. At, 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 at 3.41 megahertz, right? 3.4, 3.5, and I could get both the 17-meter band and the 12-meter band in there, right? Now... I talked to Farhan about it. Farhan thought that there might be an image problem because the IF would be cl too close to the um, operating frequency and I'd have trouble because some of the images would get through. So I'd have to be real careful, especially on transmit with the low-pass filter. There you are. You're back. We, we disappeared, but we're back. Um, anyway, let me, let me know what you think, guys. Now, I, I, I found... You know, in a, in one of the um, GE ham notes that I spent, sent out a while back, a really cool article about how to predict successful IFs, right? But that was in the pre-work band days. So the, their predictions, the, the techniques that they outlined were pretty much for the standard ham bands. The five bands, yeah. Yeah, I, I wish there was a website, a calculator, where you could say you could plug in an operating frequency, an IF, VFO frequency, and then it would tell you whether this would work or whether you would have unacceptable spurs coming out. I haven't been able to find that yet. If anybody knows of one, please let me know. And, um, oh yeah, finally I mentioned one other thing. So please send any thoughts about that particular combination or other combinations that might work for a 17-meter, 12-meter dual-band imaging transceiver. But, but suddenly that brings a thought. The two-band Moxon. 17 and I 12. This is it, another it, it, reason. they That works. Yes. There are designs for that. Yes. Yeah, yes. yes. I mean, it, it, yes. It, it, the radio gods have spoken. Yes. There you go. Yes. we got to do this. All right. Um, one final thing is I dragged out recently, and as part of this project, I was thinking about a VXO version of this, which is still a possibility. But I dragged out, and you can see it, over there, that is my original first ever SSB transmitter. Not a transceiver, a transmitter. I built this when I was out in the Azores between 2000 and 2003. And uh, it's got in it a crystal filter out of the Swan 240, which is just three crystals around 5.173 megahertz. And there, it's two half lattice filters. So basically the same thing that Lou McCoy, Lou McCoy was recommending two crystals in that in that range but he they used two pairs of them and man i did a scan of that using the nano vna just to see what the passband looked like ugly oh man that passband was anything but flat it had a big valley in the middle of it but back then they didn't care oh you know you don't you, you don't have nano vnas you don't know about it what you don't know can't bother you yeah, right yeah but now i know but then you know one interesting thing i took a look at the manual for the swan 240 They've got a picture in there, a diagram showing the filter passband, yes. and it, it's just that. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Today we would consider that unacceptably unflat. So when I, anyway, I just took a look at that. Fun stuff, nostalgia. Anyway, good stuff. Hey Pete, I know you got to get on the road here soon. You got to get going. But so we got to do cider smoke mailbag. You got time? Yeah. All right. I got. Uh, All right. I got a couple of minutes. All right, we'll do it real quick. If you have to cut out, I'll carry on okay. to the mailbag. But listen, roots of mailbag, the roots of the mailbag. This is another thing provoked by uh, Steve Aching Sinus Smith. Um, 
how come, where did mailbag come from? I started thinking about this. And I, I think that I was influenced by those shortwave broadcast stations that had mailbags. And I started Googling around. I talked to, to Thomas, K4SWL of the SWL Post. And, and, and I, we, we came up with ideas. Radio Moscow had a mailbag segment. Yeah. So did Radio Havana Cuba. So did HCJB. HCJB had, HCJB had this thing called DX Party And nice party QSL line. cards. Beautiful QSL. <laughs> <laughs> Those were fake. Anyway, uh, um, I, 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 I took a listen. Radio Moscow, I don't think that was really the influence because most of their stuff was really kind of political Soviet political. Havana, Cuba, maybe. Arnie Coro always had a lot more technical stuff in there. I think the real influence came from the mailbag segment at HCJB. And I have a sample of it on the on the webpage for this podcast. You guys can listen to it from about 1976. Um, I, I joked with, uh, with, with Thomas of the shortwave listening post. I said, you know, I think it's kind of disturbing that I thought some of our early influence might have been come from Radio Moscow. I said, but I guess it could have been worse. It could have been you know, brother stairs, yes. you know, yeah, yeah, mailbag. And, and he came back and he said, yeah, that would be called stair bag. <laughs> <laughs> kind of scary. Uh, all right. Uh, I, I, one thing I put out, a, a, I looked, took a look at my novice log, my novice log, and I took all of the 150 or 200 calls of stations I worked as a novice, yeah. put it up on my blog and said, are any of you guys out there who remember or remember this contact to look through your logs? I got, I got three responses. And it was, it's really great. I heard from um, uh, WN, the, the former WN2RTH, who was my second contact, uh, and I worked him frequently. He, he wrote to me, John. Also, WN2FLK was XW, and also w, and the, the former WB2RKK. So three people have come back and said, yeah, I, rem, I remember, or you're in my log as a, as a novice, too. Wow. I recognize the call size. That was kind of cool. A nostalgia trip. Dean, N7DA, worked west, W7ZOI, in the sweepstakes this year. Congratulations. That's like icing on the cake there. Peter, VK2EMU, down there in Australia, talks about the movie Frequency and the magic of Heath Kits. The Heath Kits appear in that movie, but they allow the protagonist to communicate with her deceased dad. <laughs> That's a really good Heath Kit. <laughs> it's a little too magical for me. Hey, uh, another blast from the past. We heard from Thomas, KK6AHT. This is the guy with the minima. He came, he was visiting Virginia, and I posted a blog post, two guys in a minima walk into a bar in Roslyn, Virginia. And he is, uh, I don't know if he's back in ham radio, but uh, he sent me an email kind of updating me on, on some recent ham radio developments. And he noted that he now has a young son. So fine, that's great. That's wonderful news there, Thomas. We hope you get back into the building game. Um Chuck, WA7ZZE, we saw, uh, he was the one who asked me whether he has to call me sir. Uh, he, he also sympathizes with my tour trouble. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and he also commented, yeah, well, Pete, Pete's pulling on his, his black necktie here. Um, let's see, who else we have here? Um, oh, Tim, M0CZP. He, he <laughs> I got a kick out of this one because... He was a victim of the spell corrector in his cell phone, and he was trying to say Varactor diodes and instead transmitted Vatican diodes. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote back to him. I said, listen, I think you should always use Vatican holy, diodes. Holy diodes. <laughs> no. Pox they're infallible. <laughs> they're, they're infallible. Infallible. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ramakrishnan, VU3RDD, wrote in from India. He's working on a, a NorCal transceiver and also a noise cancellation arrangement. It's kind of a phasing arrangement. We wish him a lot of luck in that. There's a lot of need for that. Uh, Skip NC9O. Man, Pete, I felt bad for this because I kind of, I kind of, I kind of reacted harshly. Skip wrote to me, and he started out by oh, saying that he had heard me. Yes, he had heard me calling a French station, but I was forty hertz off. Oh, the audacity! I saw no, he 40 started hertz. out by saying forty kilohertz off. Yeah, I know, but he meant forty hertz. Yes. But that, then I, I immediately thought of you. I said Pete would be biting his finger, emitting Italian curses <laughs> at this point. Ah. Like like Sonny in The Godfather or something, you know, and, but so but then I realized that Skip had a reason for knowing that I was forty hertz off because he's a podcast listener, so he knows what my voice sounds like, right? So he he wasn't doing this just just to be a smart aleck with a with a waterfall, no, he was doing it based on his knowledge of what my actual voice sounds like. This reminded me of a story from the early days of sideband. You know, they used to organize these sideband dinners. People would get together. And when they heard the other fellow talk, they would often remark, hey, uh, wow, I didn't know what you sounded like. I had you tuned 100 hertz off, which is a point that I make. You know, if you don't know what the other guy's voice sounds like, you can't tell by ear whether you're, I think 100 hertz is about the limit. When I tune 100 hertz off, it still sounds human. You go a little bit beyond 100 hertz off, it starts sounding like Donald Duck, you know. But within 100 hertz... You don't just you just don't know really what the other guy sounds like, whether he has a higher pitched voice or a lower pitched voice. But I'm sorry, Skip, you knew, and he had a reason to know. So I'm sorry if I was kind of harsh there. But 40 hertz, man. I, I thought of Pete, and I, I just said, well, "Gosh, you know." It's- the the other day, this is funny. You should mention that the, the guy up in Alaska is on the air, and someone says, uh, "Oh, Emma, I need to check what frequency are you transmitting on?" And so he comes back. He said. Oh, he says I'm on on fourteen point one nine eight two eight zero. The guy says I knew it. You were not on frequency. <laughs> <laughs> this is on twenty meters. Yeah. Oh my God, this is this is going to be expected on forty. I didn't yeah, realize that yeah. this has infected. I mean, 20 the meters. guy absolutely knew what frequency he was on. So what do you mean he's well, not on wrong? <laughs> But but you know the the Europeans don't follow this one kilohertz craziness. Yeah, you know, yeah, they don't, yeah. You know they don't. Yeah, yeah. All right. They're all wrong. Um, Steve K nine NVD um, is a listener, and he he's been going back through the old podcasts, and he found an old one way back when I was when I said that I I was using Peter Frampton's song on a local FM station. Bob KY three R also bitten by the novice nostalgia bug. And he, he's got rigs similar to the ones that I have. And he wants to know whether he should continue to use a 75-watt bulb as his dummy load. Oh, okay, I said, I'll yeah, man, go for it. Solid state, that might be a problem. You could well, smoke I, I the final. He's got, he's got he's tube stuff. I think okay. it's the X60-ish. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Definitely you're okay do it. with vacuum tubes. Don't do it with solid state. <laughs> You'll smoke them. Uh, Todd um, K7TFC out there in Portland. Uh, a great correspondent of ours, he sent me this video about why solder smoke always blows into your face. Why when you're soldering something up, the smoke comes in your face. I've actually done investigations into this, and they've come up with a very plausible theory about why it happens. I have the link up on the blog. Anthony, VU3JVX, also writes in from India. He has built a homebrew Antuino. Homebrew Antuino, pretty cool. And I have asked for help from Anthony, and I'm going to put a little pressure on him here. 
or to the whole Antuino community. My only problem with the Antuino is it doesn't go down to 455 kcs. It stops at about 1 megahertz. But I need it to go down below 455, down to around 450 or so, so I can sweep some of these 455 kcs yeah. filters that I have. So I know this is a matter of just modifying the software and then helping me get it into my Antuino box. Please help me. I need help. Okay, Jack, NG2E is building Pete's DCRX. Jack is a, a, a neighbor of mine here. Great guy, and he's a, a mountain topper, a soda guy. So Pete's DCRX might find its way on the top of one of the Shenandoah Hills here soon. Uh, I mentioned Scott, WA9WFA. He has been struggling with the Mate for the Mighty Midget receiver, and he and I have been comparing notes on it. But he wanted to send me some videos about an, another receiver that he built, the first receiver that he built, an HBR-13. Oh, yeah. This was a beautiful receiver. James Lamb. And he, a, a lot of work, man. That's a comp, the 13 tubes in there. He used 12 because he used a solid-state supply. But what a piece of what a beautiful piece of work! He has a front panel in plexiglass. Plastic. Oh, you can see the see the works. You can see beautiful. the parts yeah. inside. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, inspirational stuff. I put three of his videos up on the blog. Check it out. But congratulations to Scott on making that HBR thirteen work. Uh, th then um, Steve two e zero fxz. He followed the same advice that you gave me, Pete. You told me to, about where I could get a couple of Yesu FT one hundred one VFOs. Somebody else got one, too, from the same source, and that's Stephen, 2E0FXZ, and he was just asking for me, to me some information, asking for some information on the, uh, the output frequencies for this thing, so I gave it to him. Really, really good. Good luck with that, Stephen. Good, good piece of gear. Bob, K7Zulu Bravo has been on the air with a 56-milliwatt homebrew yes. rig and a big, big, big antenna out down there in the southwest. Made a contact. Congratulations. Fine business. Our friend Dean, AC9JQ, has retired um, and now has more time to devote to radio. So welcome to the club, Dean. And uh, the hours are much better, believe me. <laughs> um, Alan, WA9IRS, sent us an update on the right to repair movement and what's going on with the right to repair movement. Apparently the French are coming up with some sort of repairability index for all new pieces of consumer electronics. This reminded me, Peter, of something you said about how some of this stuff didn't seem to be designed for service. If they put capacitors that needed to be changed way down deep inside. Anyway, uh, continuing the good fight. Uh, Farhan, Pete, has, as you know, has invited the both of us to speak to his local radio club, the Lamarcan Club. It'll be on December 11th or 12th. I think we might be on at different times, which is fine. And here's the cool part. We're going to be simulcast on television. Ooh. None of this, none of this kind of YouTube stuff like we're doing now. Like real, real time. TV. Real time. Real time. Live. Ooh. It's going through a satellite. I have to wear my bow tie. Yeah. The, the, the OQ or the QO100. This is the geostationary satellite that the Qataris put up that we can't see because it's over the uh, the Eastern Hemisphere, not the Western Hemisphere. This is the one where they're putting us to shame by doing something that we haven't been able to do. But uh, Farhan has been working with the people in charge of this thing, and they're going to carry our presentations. Ooh. So for those of you in the Eastern Hemisphere, tune to Q01, Q0100, the, the, the only amateur radio geostationary satellite. And for those of us in the rest of the world, you can get it online. You'll be able to watch live uh, as Pete presents and as I present 
December 11th or 12th of this year. Stay tuned. Should be fun. By the way, I get to do what he does. It'll be at midnight. Oh, man. You're going to do it at midnight? Yeah, midnight. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what my time slot is. I got to find out. Farhan, have mercy. All right. Um, Finally, uh, I I got many suggestions about what to do with my Apollo 11 time capsule. When I was a 10-year-old kid, I collected all the newspapers from the Apollo 11 landing and put them in plastic bags and stuck them up in the attic of my parents' house. The time capsule has come back to me. I really don't know what to do with it. I'm afraid to open it because the paper in there hasn't been exposed to the air in, you know, 60, 50, or 60 years. I'm looking for ideas. A lot of guys sent me the idea saying, stick it up in your attic and let your kids figure out what to do with it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I'm looking for something else. So if you can think of something else, let me know. Maybe there's an Apollo 11 group. Maybe there is. I don't know. Somebody tell me what to do. What to do with this thing? What to do? Hey, Pete, you got to go. You yeah. got you got duties and responsibilities. Yeah, I so do. Maybe let's close by just saying Happy Thanksgiving to everybody who celebrates this this holiday. It's a lot of fun. You're going to be busy, Pasta Pete. You must be you must be busy coming up. Uh, I am. I got to as soon as we finish. I got to go grocery shopping to get in ahead of everybody else, so the shelves are not empty. Wear your beret. Wear my beret. And the bow tie. And the bow tie. Hey, Pete, good luck. Yeah. Thanks very much. 7-3 from Northern Virginia. 7-3 from the left coast. Ciao. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!